This episode features graphic details of murder and sexual assault and is not suitable for all audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello everyone, welcome back to Not Always Polite. This is the second part of a two-part series, so if you haven't listened to part one yet, you might be a little confused, but I'm not here to tell you what to do. So, if you want to listen to this first, cool, but I warned you, you will be confused. For those of you who march to the beat of your own drum and want to start here, we are discussing the abduction and murder of Victoria Tory Stafford. In this episode, we're going to get into more details of the crime that occurred, as well as the trials of both Terry Lynn and Michael. And as I'm recording this, we are currently on day two of counting votes for the U.S. presidential election. And I just wanted to say a big hug, a big shout out, a big I got you to all of my American listeners. I can't imagine how stressful it is being an American citizen right now. I'm stressed enough and I'm in Canada and it really doesn't affect me. So I just want to let everyone know I'm here for you if you need anything feel free to message me on Instagram. I don't have a lot of followers yet, so I can usually respond. Um, If anyone needs anything, I'm always here for you. And one final friendly reminder that this case does discuss the sexual assault of a child, the murder of a child, the abduction of a child. If any of this is triggering to you, I suggest not listening to this episode. Um, I totally understand. Come back for the next one. But we are going to get into the case. true crime like us if so check out our podcast crime divers hosted by me jill and me laura look out for new episodes every tuesday when we discuss uk crimes that shook the nation so what are you waiting for come join us as we dive in it was announced in mid-august that terry lynn's trial would be postponed until october 1st because her lawyer said they had an overwhelming amount of evidence to review Michael's lawyer made a public statement that he would be pleading not guilty to all charges. The public was still fuming about the lack of an Amber Alert when Tori was first reported missing. They put together a petition called Tori's Law that gathered more than 60,000 signatures. As I mentioned in the last episode, the criteria at the time of Tori's disappearance to issue an Amber Alert was that there had to be, one, a confirmed abduction, Two, there had to be reason to believe the child was in danger of serious bodily harm or death. And three, they had to have a description of a person or vehicle of interest. Because of the awareness brought about by the petition, the Ontario Provincial Police, or OPP, agreed to revise this criteria. The new changes would include that the police only had to believe there was an abduction, not confirm it. They would also now be able to issue an Amber Alert without any descriptive information about a person or a vehicle. Rodney thought the changes were outstanding, but felt concerned that there would be people abusing the system. Rodney said the police believed Tori was murdered the same day she was taken, and because a call to the police wasn't made until two hours after she was last seen, it might not have even helped in this case. In December of 2009, 
Terry Lynn waived her right to a preliminary hearing, meaning she agreed to proceed directly to trial. Her lawyer said that she made this decision because she was mentally ready to deal with the matter. Her trial was set to take place in March of 2010. In the same month, Michael Rafferty did the exact opposite. He went ahead with a preliminary hearing, saying through his lawyer that he would be pleading not guilty. This hearing was expected to take place in June of 2010. The last the family knew, Terry Lynn's trial was set to take place sometime in March. April rolled around, and they still hadn't heard anything regarding her case. On April 30th, an announcement was made, but it wasn't good news. A court order was handed down by Justice Do Do Dougal? Dougal R. McDermott, permitting the publication of this statement only. Quote, as we previously reported, Terry Lynn McClintock was supposed to appear on March 30th in the Superior Court of Justice in Woodstock. But because of a temporary publication ban, we are temporarily prohibited from providing any additional information until further order of the court. This publication ban was so strict, the media couldn't even report if Terry had appeared in court. The public was outraged. They felt that it was going the same way as Paul and Carla's case had gone. Um, if you didn't hear last episode, Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka, Google them, they're both fucked. Anyways, um, this media ban didn't just cover traditional media that was around at the time of their case. This included all print, digital, and even internet resources from sharing any information about the trial. Professionals in the criminal justice field stated that they felt this ban was more dangerous than good. The spread of misinformation would be more damaging than knowing the truth. Not knowing why there was a publication ban would only lead to more rumors and speculation. For the family, the police were able to tell them what they believed happened to Tori in her final moments. Now, as for filling in the blanks and getting any sort of confirmation, the family could only look forward to the fact that the publication ban didn't last forever and that they would eventually be able to see all the details expressed in court. One month after this announcement, the Ministry of the Attorney General stated that they would be proceeding with the direct indictment of Michael Rafferty's case, meaning he would skip the preliminary hearing and go straight into a trial. A direct indictment is only issued in the most serious of cases, and if the Crown feels they have enough evidence for a strong likelihood of conviction. In November of 2010, Michael Rafferty made a court appearance via video. It was stated that he appeared to gain some weight while in prison, likely because he wasn't using Oxycontin anymore. It was also stated that he was seen smirking. Gross. Another month later, a decision by the Supreme Court of Canada determined that the controversial publication ban would be lifted. The media could then go back and report on everything they missed during Terry Lynn's trial. However, there would still be some restrictions on what exactly could be reported, and they wanted to ensure that Michael Rafferty still had a fair shot at a trial, so they didn't want any of the information to be released to jeopardize his case. Here is what the media was able to report. Terry Lynn sat in a plexiglass box during her trial. She often wore a tailored black suit and she cried a lot. The kidnapping charge was dropped and only the first degree murder charge remained. Terry Lynn pled guilty to the first degree murder of eight-year-old Tori Stafford. She said her motive in pleading guilty was that it, quote, it seems like the right thing to do. When it was time for the court to read out her involvement in Tori's murder, her mother Tara and the other family members left the room. Rodney stayed to hear what was to come. The judge read a large statement of facts, but the media was only allowed to report on Terry Lynn's side of the story, leaving out any involvement of Michael Rafferty and what role he played in the murder. It was said that that morning, Terry Lynn woke up like any other day. 
She got some food vouchers and food and went to the community employment services to apply for a job. From there, she walked past Tori's elementary school, seeing Tori walking towards her. At about 3.30, Terry Lynn struck up a conversation with Tori, telling her that she had a Shih Tzu dog. Tori was excited because she also had a Shih Tzu, and then Terry Lynn invited Tori to come see her dog. This is where the surveillance video shows the two walking off together, Tori under the impression she was going to meet a cute puppy. They then drove to Guelph about 50 minutes from Woodstock. They stopped at a Home Depot and Terry Lynn purchased a claw hammer and garbage bags. Next, the pair went to a location just north of Guelph. A statement reads, quote, In a remote location on a side road, Victoria Elizabeth Stafford was murdered and her body was concealed. Between 9 and 10 p.m. that night, Terry Lynn returned back to the house she shared with her mom in Woodstock. Now, remember, this is minimal details regarding what happened to Tori. More would come after Michael's trial took place, and the public would just have to wait to find out more. The statement of facts did reveal a few more details about what went on. They are as follows. The first is that despite the fact the police waited 11 days to treat Tori's disappearance as an abduction, the police came to that realization as early as the day after her disappearance. Secondly, as soon as they released the initial footage of Tori walking off with the woman in the white coat, they had received several tips suggesting it was Terry Lynn in the video. One of these tips came from Tara, Tori's mother herself. So how did Tara know Terry Lynn? Well, as I mentioned, they both owned Shih Tzus, and they had actually considered breeding the dogs at one time. Tara actually went to her house to discuss the matter. We would learn more about their connection with Michael Rafferty when it went to trial. When the police realized it was Terry Lynn on the video, they came to the realization that she had a few outstanding warrants for smaller charges. On April 12th, four days after Tori's disappearance, they arrested Terry Lynn. Four days. It wasn't until five and a half weeks later that Michael would be arrested. Initially, Terry Lynn denied being the woman in the video, but the police were able to hold her on existing charges. On May 12th, her story changed. She said she did recall walking up the street the school was on, but didn't stop or talk to anyone. On May 19th, Terry Lynn declined a lawyer and went with the OPP to be interviewed for a third time. First, she took a polygraph, and then she was questioned. She admitted to being the woman in the video and gave a full account of what happened that day to Tori. Here is a small segment of her confession. The full confession, it's like an hour long, is up on the Woodstock like newspapers YouTube channel, and I will have that linked in my Instagram. But here's the clip of her confession. Terry, let's talk about what you saw. Okay, you can't have your back turned like that, right? You saw this, okay? This isn't a matter of what you heard, right? Let's talk about what you saw, all right? You're concerned about this little girl, all right? You're not going to turn your back on her, right? Okay, we need to talk about the things you saw. This could come out, this can come out quickly. You know what? You know how I look at these situations like this, Terry, because people have to talk to me about these things quite often, okay? And you I look at this as like taking off a band-aid, right? You can do it quickly and get it done, right? Or you can just keep pulling it for a little bit at a time, and that's what hurts, right? That's what you're going through right now. We need to just tear that band-aid off. Okay? Just tell me 
what you saw, right? <laughs> I see, I see Mike, you kick her a couple times, like, mm-hmm. garbage bag over her head. And I didn't have a clear, like, sight of Tori. Like, I could see Mike before I could see anything of Tori. Like, I would... <laughs> Just a hammer. Where did he hit her with the hammer? The head. She had a garbage bag over, so there wasn't afterwards. He was pretty much what made it easiest. Like, he knew what he was doing. Like, there was no, like, blood splatter. Like, so he hits her in the head with the hammer, right? And then what happens? He had the garbage bags, like he had garbage bags, he had access to garbage bags, like I'm not, again, I'm not 100% on whether or not he went to the trunk and grabbed them or whether he already had them in the backseat with him. Mm -hmm. I I should have started to put garbage bags over her her feet, like the bottom, and then over the top of her, like, I'm pretty sure, like, Maybe two, three garbage bags he used. Okay. So he wraps her up in garbage bags, right? Like I said, I remember from that point, like I, that, that was the last time of me seeing Tori was on you beside that car. Terry. Terry. With the confession out of the way, the police now needed to find out what happened to Tori's body. Of course, this wasn't smooth sailing. Terry Lynn wouldn't release any information. She was holding back information, probably to keep herself from getting in any more trouble than she was already in. Um, Like I said, you can listen to the full interrogation on YouTube. Essentially, the officer asked her to describe her surroundings best as she could. Using this information, they would eventually come to find the little girl's remains. After getting her testimony, the police now had to go out and find her remains. At this time, Terry Lynn, hoping for leniency, said she would work with investigators to locate her body. In the weeks following, she tried to remember exactly where they left her. They searched in areas north of Guelph. Terry Lynn described the scene as having a broken fence, a large rock pile, and from there you could see silos and a nearby house with a laneway and trees. Now, if you know this area at all, which I'm sure a lot of you don't, but this essentially describes 80% of the area. Personally, I know the drive from Guelph to Mount Forest well, as we took this route often when we did our semi-annual shopping trips in the mall in Guelph. My grandparents live in Mount Forest, and they often took us. Um, Essentially, it's all farmland, so this made searching difficult. On July 19th, an officer who was driving around recognized some of the landmarks Terry Lynn had described. He got out of his car and went up to a rock pile next to a group of trees. He noticed there was some green garbage bags sticking out from under the pile of rocks. He then knew he had found the remains of Tori Safford. The officer was actually later revealed to be the same officer that Terry Lynn had confessed to in the audio clips you just heard. The final statement of facts said that Tori's body had undergone significant decomposition in the time since she was killed. She was positively identified by dental records and by the Hannah Montana t-shirt and butterfly earrings her mother had lent her that day. 
Her cause of death was determined to be multiple blunt force trauma. Terry Lynn was sentenced to life in prison with no eligibility for parole for 25 years. Now, don't forget, this is only half the battle. Tori's family was now preparing themselves for the hearings and everything that goes along with the preparations for Michael Rafferty's trial. In March of 2011, a judge granted Michael's request to have his trial moved outside the city of Woodstock. The defense argued that there would be no chance at a fair trial in the city, although they only moved it a short 45 minutes to London. His trial was set to start in January of 2012, three years after Tori went missing. In September of 2011, Tori's mother Tara, along with her boyfriend and another man, were arrested in a drug bust. She was charged with possession of a controlled substance and stolen property. The relapse Tara was undergoing seemed to be no surprise. As someone who had struggled with addiction in the past, it isn't surprising that she turned to drugs to help her deal with the traumatic loss of her daughter. In January of 2012, the partial media ban was still in place. The public essentially only knew that the pre-trial hearings were happening, but no details of what was said during the hearings were released. In February of 2012, Michael was officially arraigned and pled not guilty to the charges of first-degree murder, sexual assault causing bodily harm, and kidnapping. His trial finally began on March 5, 2012. The Crown Attorney stated in his initial address to the jury that it was not their job to determine who did what in the case. They were directed to determine whether or not Michael and Terry Lynn worked together. In the surveillance video that showed Tori walking by the high school with Terry Lynn, there was a woman seen standing in the frame as they walked by. This woman testified that she was there waiting to pick up her sons. She said she took note of Tori and Terry Lynn because Tori was in her youngest son's class. She said that she didn't personally know Terry Lynn, but it seemed like Tori knew the woman. At this time, Tara was next to testify. She told the court that although she had worked to wean herself off of Oxycontin earlier in the year, she had relapsed. She also revealed the real reason she knew Carol McClintock, Terry Lynn's mother. Tara admitted that she had purchased Oxycontin from Carol. Not once, but twice. Tara went to the house where Carol and Terry Lynn lived. As Tara and Carol went about their drug deal and discussing the breeding of their dogs mentioned earlier in the episode, Terry Lynn actually sat in to join them. Tara recalled that she seemed to be heavily under the influence. This meeting occurred in January or February of 2009. Remember, Tori went missing in April of the same year. To Tara's knowledge, neither of her kids had ever had contact with the McClintic family. An officer testified next, speaking to the magnitude of the investigation. This was the largest investigation in all of Ontario, if not Canada. There were 14,000 people involved in the search that covered more than 180 kilometers. Oh, and by 180, I mean 18,000 kilometers. I'm sorry, I'm an idiot. An investigator testified that after Terry Lynn confessed, they were able to obtain video surveillance of her at a Home Depot in Guelph. This shows Terry Lynn purchasing the garbage bag and claw hammer. The investigator stated that it was at this time that he realized that they were no longer looking for Tori alive. Terry Lynn was next to testify. She was obviously the star witness against Michael Rafferty. She described her traumatic upbringing and how she got into doing drugs. 
for more information on Terry Lynn as well as Michael. Make sure you listen to the first episode in this series. She then went into describing what happened to Tori. She started by talking about how she and Michael met at the pizza place. He drove her home, and their relationship started from there. She talked about how they got high together and had sex. One day, Michael asked her if it would be weird to kidnap someone. Terry Lynn wanted their relationship to work, so she ignored this massive red flag. Ladies, if your man ever asks you about kidnapping someone, just run. Just go fast. On the day that Tori disappeared, Terry Lynn testified that Michael called her in the morning looking for Oxycontin. She gave him numbers for several people he could call, and then she got high herself on prescription drugs. They were driving around in his Honda when they passed by Tori's elementary school, when Michael again mentioned kidnapping someone. This time, though, he wanted her to, quote, prove she wasn't all talk. He then coached her, telling her what to say to lure a child into the car. He told her to talk about cliche things like dogs or candy. Terry Lynn said that she had planned on going and just pretending she looked for a kid and then coming back to the car empty-handed saying she couldn't find anyone to come with her. Michael followed her, driving past, watching her. So she decided she would walk with a child but not go any further than that. Terry Lynn walked towards Tori, who ended up being the only unaccompanied child she saw. She walked up beside her and introduced herself as Terry Lynn and asked if Tori wanted to see her Shih Tzu dog. Of course, since Tori had the same one, she said yes. The pair walked off towards where Michael had parked the car. This part really makes me sad for some reason. Tori reached for Terry Lynn's hand as the two crossed the street. When they got to the car, Terry Lynn pushed Tori inside. Michael was not impressed. He told Terry Lynn that Tori was too old and he wanted someone younger who would be easier to manipulate. But for whatever reason, he drove off with her anyways. They made Tori crouch down on the floor of where the back seat was. They covered her up with Michael's black coat and drove out of the city. Terry Lynn chatted with Tori. She learned that her favorite color was purple, her favorite TV show was Hannah Montana, and her favorite holiday was Halloween because she loved dressing up. The only thing Michael said was, quote, we can't keep her and we can't just take her back. The trio drove on the 401 from Woodstock to Guelph. They made a stop at a house so that Michael could buy Percocets. When he left the car to go get the pills, Terry Lynn said she apologized to Tori for Michael yelling at her. Tori peeked out from her hiding spot and asked what was wrong with him. Terry Lynn assured the girl that she wouldn't let anything happen to her and she would get to go home soon. Their next stop was at the Home Depot in Guelph. This was the Home Depot on the surveillance video. It showed Terry Lynn purchasing the claw hammer that would later be used as the murder weapon and the garbage bags they would use to dispose of her little body. After this stop, they made their way to their final location. Michael drove the car to a rural area he pulled down a long laneway and into a clearing, parking next to a rock pile. Here's where it starts to get a little more disturbing, so brace yourselves. Terry Lynn says Michael started masturbating as he pulled the car into the parking spot. He then announced that they couldn't keep Tori. Terry Lynn said that she knew what that meant, and she got out of the car. She said that, quote, she couldn't be there when it happened. According to Terry Lynn, Michael climbed into the back seat and brutally sexually assaulted Tori. 
Terry Lynn said that she could hear Tori screaming, but she just turned away. A little while later, Michael called Terry back because Tori needed to go to the bathroom. When Terry Lynn got back to the car, little Tori once again grabbed her by the hand, and although she was brave through the whole ordeal, she was sobbing. Terry Lynn said she apologized to Tori, and Tori just said, quote, Just promise you won't let him do it again. Terry Lynn told Tori she was a very strong little girl before heading back to the car where Michael was waiting. Tori refused to let go of Terry's hand. She told Terry not to leave her alone, but shortly after Terry got in the front seat, she left the car once again, leaving Michael to sexually assault Tori for a second time. Terry Lynn stated that she was trying not to hear what was going on in the car behind her. She said that she was having flashbacks to what happened to her as a little girl. She realized that she needed to do something, and she turned around and saw the brutal attack happening in the car. According to Terry Lynn, this sent her into a tailspin. She pictured herself in this situation when she was a little girl, and this made her angry. All of this rage and self-blame boiled up inside of her. It was like she didn't even realize that was Tori that was there anymore. She walked back to the car, and by this time, Tori was laying on the ground outside of the car. She was badly injured, but still alive. Terry Lynn said that she started kicking the little girl. She then grabbed a garbage bag and put it over her head. Terry Lynn then admitted that she was the one who hit Tori on the head with the hammer. This was different than her initial statement. She changed her story. She admitted that she was the one who hit Tori over the head multiple times with the hammer and ended her life. She said, quote, I went back to the vehicle and I savagely murdered the little girl. It turns out she had recently recanted her statement about six weeks prior while talking to a counselor. In this new version of her testimony, it was not Michael that told her to buy the claw hammer and garbage bags. It was her idea. The ending remained parallel to that of her original interrogation. Michael put Tori's body inside several layers of garbage bags with the help of Terry Lynn. They buried her under the rock pile. She confessed that she lied in her original interrogation. She said that she didn't want to believe the truth about what really happened, that she could do something like that. The judge directed the jury that because of her change in testimony, they should only take into account the most recent version of her story, the one she gave while under oath. Terry Lynn continued, saying that after they hid Tori's body, they changed shoes and drove to a car wash in Cambridge. They dumped the garbage bags and claw hammer and cleaned the car. Conveniently, they both had a change of clothes with them in the car, and they threw their old ones out the window while they drove down the Highway 401. A passerby later found the shoes on the road, which corroborates her story. I always wondered how people lost their shoes when I would see them laying on the side of the road, uh, and I will definitely never look at another one the same again. Along with the clothes and shoes, they had also cut out two spots of blood that were stained into the back seat that they couldn't get out. In the days following the murder, Michael came up with an alibi. Essentially, this was just a story the two would tell, giving them an excuse as to where they were that day. The alibi consisted of the following. They were window shopping in Oakville and stopped in to see a dance studio. Terry Lynn wrote this down in a journal so she wouldn't forget what Michael had told her. He even requested that she change her appearance by dyeing her hair blonde. When Terry was arrested, she had cut her hair, but the box of dye Michael had bought her was still sitting on the bathroom counter. She was initially arrested on a parole violation, and during this time, 
Michael came to visit her in jail to ensure she didn't say anything to the police that would cause them to come after him. She promised him she wouldn't say anything about him and that she would take full responsibility for everything. Supposedly, he had more to lose than she did. Quote, he had a full life, a job, things going for him. I just, I really had nothing. Michael's response was just sick. He said that he would want conjugal visits with her while she was in jail. The only thing he was worried about while she was taking full responsibility for a murder they committed was ensuring that he could still get laid. This guy genuinely makes my blood boil. In another visit, Michael proposed a Bonnie and Clyde type relationship where they would break Terry Lynn out of jail and run away together. On their last visit before she confessed, she remembers touching his face and him looking at her and almost laughing at her saying, quote, you'll do anything for a bit of love, eh? Makes me so sad for her, even though she's a fucked up monster. It makes me feel kind of sad for her. Because her most recent testimony in front of the jury didn't match her initial confession, the judge allowed the interrogation video to be released in court as evidence, and he instructed them to weigh her initial confection, confection, what the fuck? Her initial confession against her most recent testimony. It was now time for Michael's lawyer, Dick Durstein, to begin his cross-examination. He started out by presenting some letters that Terry Lynn had written while in the detention center before Tori was killed. These letters described violent acts that Terry Lynn wanted to do to people that had hurt her in the past. It was also clear by these letters that she wanted to portray herself as a thug in the detention center. In one of these letters, she talks about wanting to bash someone's skull in and piece it back together like a puzzle. She also talked about torturing her victims in many ways, including setting them on fire. She referred to herself as being like a, quote, vampire in heat, saying she was bloodthirsty and that she just wanted to take the first person she saw and smash their skull in. Through questioning, Dick presented the case for the defense, suggesting that the abduction was Terry Lynn's idea. She was the one on the surveillance video. When she first came to the car with Tori, supposedly Michael didn't think anything of it, but Terry Lynn said she was going to be payment to settle a drug debt and offered her to Michael sexually, to which he refused. Terry Lynn was also the one seen on the video at Home Depot buying the hammer and garbage bags. According to Dick, once they got to the rural area, Terry Lynn instructed Michael to walk away from the car because Tori was afraid of him. When he went back to the car, he was, quote, horrified to find that Tori was already dead. Remember, Terry Lynn denies all of these accusations. Dick used her lies in her initial interrogation and subsequent interviews against her, suggesting to the jury that they can't trust anything she says because she admitted to lying in the past. Her reasoning for lying in the first place was because, quote, she was unable to psychologically fathom what she had done, so she blocked it out and genuinely believed that she hadn't killed Tori. Terry Lynn went on to say that when she woke up that day, she had not planned on murdering anyone. She had no plans on kidnapping a little girl and later killing her. As cross-examination continued, Dick drilled Terry's violent past into the heads of the jury. He wanted to make sure they knew that she had a past and that her violence had gotten her in trouble before. Even recently, she had gotten into an altercation with another inmate 
where she kicked and stomped on her even after she had submitted into the fetal position. Sound familiar? In a visit with her grandmother, only three weeks before trial, she confessed that the only thing that bothered her about the murder was that it happened to a little kid. Otherwise, she could do it all again. All in all, Terry Lynn testified for six days. The same day Terry Lynn finished her testimony, the court also heard portions of Michael's interrogation tape. In the tape, he of course denied any involvement in the disappearance. The tape also shows Michael putting on quite the show. Before the interrogation starts, the video shows Michael curled up in a blanket on a chair, sniffling like a baby. Shortly after the interrogation begins, the interviewer asks Michael if he's sitting across from the next Paul Bernardo. Michael then starts dry heaving. The detective gets him a bucket, but he never actually does throw up. It suggests that he is totally putting on an act to implicate him to implicate his innocence and seem more docile and submissive. There were two detectives interrogating him and Terry Lynn at the same time. They were playing good cop, bad cop. While the quote good cop was interviewing Michael, the bad cop was interviewing Terry Lynn. He tried every technique he knew, but he couldn't get Michael to crack. Going back to the trial, the next to testify was Barbara Armstrong, an ex-girlfriend of Michael's. She was the one who initially started supplying him with Percocets. As it turned out, it was her house they stopped at the day Tori disappeared when they stopped to pick up drugs. Barbara testified that she saw a woman that she described as having brown hair sitting in the passenger seat. Of course, because Tori was hidden in the back seat, she was not seen. The next to testify was Sergeant Jim Smith, who was the officer who interrogated Terry Lynn. He testified that he had found Tori's remains under a rock pile. In his account, he said that there were about 10 large rocks on top of her body. The jury was actually taken by bus to the location where Tori's remains were found in hopes that this would give them a better idea of the evidence that was found. Next up was the autopsy testimony. The judge warned the jury to prepare themselves for what was about to come. He said what they were about to see would, quote, tug at their heartstrings, but he reminded them that they were to decide this case emotions aside. This was going to be the worst they would see in the case, and he wanted to prepare themselves. Testifying was Ontario's chief forensic pathologist, Michael Polinen. There were pictures of Tori's remain put on screen, and he said that her body was in a state of decomposition. It had been more than three months before Tori's remains were found by police. This meant that her body was so badly decomposed, there was no way of proving whether or not she had been sexually assaulted. Of course, Michael's lawyers used this to their advantage reiterating this fact during the cross-examination in an effort to invalidate Terry Lynn's story. The evidence did show, though, that Tori's little body had suffered numerous injuries before she died, the cause of death being multiple blows to the head with a hammer. She also had multiple injuries to her body that included blunt force trauma that lacerated her liver and fractured ribs. These injuries could have been fatal on their own, let alone being struck multiple times in the head with a hammer. In the garbage bags her body was wrapped in, they found two plastic bottle caps, a piece of a hair clip, and her butterfly earrings. The only thing she was wearing was a hooded Hannah Montana t-shirt with the words, A Girl Can Dream, written on the front. On Michael's day in court, he 
he made the interesting choice to wear a purple shirt and a purple striped tie, the exact color of the memorial ribbons Tori's family made for the community to wear in support of the search efforts, and of course, Tori's favorite color. Constable Gary Stoyne followed, testifying that they searched his car and the house he and his mother shared in Woodstock. Guided by Terry Lynn, the officers found a black peacoat in the hall closet. This was the coat that Terry Lynn says she used to cover Tori during the car ride. On the jacket, they found two little blonde hairs. One of the hairs didn't contain enough DNA to be tested, and the other did not come back as a match to Tori. Also in the house, they found multiple pill bottles without labels, and a bottle of oxycodone, and a missing poster for Tori. The dashboard of the car and interior surfaces had been painted white, and this was noted to be a sloppy white paint job. The back seat was littered with empty water bottles, all of the same brand, and the caps matched the ones that were found in the garbage bags with Tori's remains. The police also found the receipt from Walmart for two bottles of hair dye, the same kind that was found in Terry Lynn's house. Though some of Terry Lynn's statements had changed throughout the investigation, there were two main points that stayed the same throughout. The first being that Tori was hidden on the floor of the back seat during the abduction. Second was that she was sexually assaulted by Michael in the back seat. Conveniently, by the time Michael was arrested, the back seat had been removed and disposed of and was never located during the search. Since they were not able to use physical DNA to put Tori in Michael's car that day, they asked for witnesses to corroborate his story and identify whether or not the back seat was in the car the days prior to the abduction. To do so, the Crown brought in several women that Michael was dating around the time of the disappearance. A woman named Sarah, who said she met Michael on Plenty of Fish on April 14th, six days after Tori was abducted, said there was no back seat in Michael's car. Not only that, but this man was literally talking to her about abducting children. Like, he said that the kid could grow up thinking the abductors are their parents. I think I said this before, but just to reiterate, if a man ever talks to you about abducting children, you need to run and tell someone. Tell the police, tell your mother, tell somebody. Um, Sarah also said he was obsessive about checking the news regarding Tori's disappearance. And he told her that he had, quote, insider info on Tori's mother, Tara. A woman named Alexis said that she rode with Michael on March the 23rd, about two weeks before Tori went missing. At this time, she says there was a backseat in the car. A third woman stated that about a week before Tori went missing, she had gone on a date with Michael, and when he drove her home, there was a backseat in the car. A self-described, quote, nosy neighbor said that just over a week before Tori went missing, Michael was seen taking out the car seat to install some speakers. At that time, he put the car seat in a shed, but the neighbor didn't see in the car again to know if the seat was put back in at all. On April 15th, about a week after the disappearance, the same neighbor recalled seeing the seat on the curb outside of the house Michael and his mother shared. He said that the upholstery was torn up. Three other neighbors also agreed that they had seen the car seat on the side of the road during that time. A former employer of Michael testified that while working on different landfill sites, Michael worked at one that was roughly five kilometers away from where they found Tori's remains. Not long after Tori disappeared, this creep had the audacity to update his Facebook status to say, quote, bring Tori home. 
A woman named Joy testified that Michael was overly into the investigation. She said that he called her on May 16th, and he was upset after the police started questioning him regarding the abduction. She said that he felt like the police were blaming him, and he didn't know why. She told him that there was nothing for him to worry about. She also said that this came up in conversation quite a bit, including one day when the pair went to watch her daughter do gymnastics. On May 19th, the day Terry Lynn was confessing, Michael bought clothes for Joy for a trip to Las Vegas she had planned to take the next day. The questions he was asking about her size made her uncomfortable, but she went along with it anyways. I mean, hey, free clothes, right? So she agreed to meet him in a Good Life Fitness parking lot around 7.30. He got into her car and put the bags in the back seat. She looked up and a man was at her window. He asked, quote, are you Michael Rafferty? And she got out of the car to see 20 police officers taking Michael away in handcuffs. This, of course, being the day that he was arrested for Tori's abduction. Charity, the young mother of four who Michael talked into escorting, testified that she had given him almost $17,000 plus cash along the way from December of 2008 to May of 2009. On the day that Tori disappeared, she deposited $400 into his account for what he stated was gas and a car payment. He withdrew that amount later that day and spent most of it on Percocets. Throughout this process, it was brought to light that during the spring of 2009, Michael was dating around 13 women. Seven of those he started dating after Tori went missing. At the time of his arrest, three women thought they were in an exclusive relationship with him. The Crown presented cell phone records as evidence that showed Michael driving from Guelph to Mount Forest and back on April 8th. Terry Lynn said in her statement that after they picked up Tori in Woodstock, Michael removed the battery from his phone. This indicated that he knew the police could track him that way, but when he got to Guelph and went to get the pills, he put the battery back in. The next gap occurred in his records between 5.05pm and 7.47pm. According to Terry Lynn, this was the time that Tori was murdered. At 7.47, Michael checked his voicemail. This call bounced off a tower near Mount Forest. That call and Terry Lynn's directions were essentially the key in finding Tori's remains. After a grueling eight weeks composed of 61 witnesses, 186 exhibits, the Crown concluded its case against Michael Rafferty. When it was time for the defense to make their case, many were surprised that Michael Rafferty would not be taking the stand. He had been doing some serious note-taking the whole time, so it was weird that he wasn't going to defend himself on the stand. The defense only called one witness. This witness, who remains nameless, was picking her grandchildren up from school that day. She testified that she saw a woman, matching Terry Lynn's description, go into the school. And later, she said she saw the same woman walking away with Tori. The woman stated that she seemed like she was, quote, on a mission and had a stern look on her face. But she also said that Tori seemed happy. She said that she was skipping, talking a mile a minute, and that she assumed the woman was her mother. Basically, the whole point of her testimony was to put more blame onto Terry Lynn, making her the mastermind behind the whole operation. 
Michael's lawyer, Dick Durstein, suggested to the jury that if Terry Lynn was not a willing participant, she could have easily gotten help at one of their stops along the way. Whether that had been at Tim Hortons, at the Home Depot, she easily could have alerted someone and told them to call the police, but she didn't. This was to prove that Terry Lynn was the ringleader, not Michael. In their closing statement, the Crown suggested that Michael Rafferty used Terry Lynn and her fucked up mind to help carry out his sick fantasy of abducting and murdering a child. They even said that Michael knew that Terry Lynn had what it took to finish off Tori. Quote, Michael Rafferty and Terry Lynn were in this together. Together they did this to Tori Stafford. Together they are guilty. The jury was then sent off to deliberate. When the jury was sequestered, the publication ban was lifted. This enabled evidence found on Michael's computer to be published. At the time, not even the jury had seen this evidence. The jury didn't see this evidence because it was deemed inadmissible because of the search warrant was for his car, not the laptop that was found inside. On the laptop, they found search results that were so incriminating. Um, the search results included real underage rape, nude preteen, and best program to download child's porn. There was also four years worth of child porn downloaded on that computer. There were even videos of real people being killed, also called snuff films. 11 days before Tori was abducted, Michael downloaded a movie called, quote, Gardens of the Night, in which a young blonde girl is abducted. After Tori's disappearance, this creep even downloaded the movie Carla, the movie based on Paul Bernardo and Carla Homoka. If this stuff isn't bad enough, the officers found how-to videos on child sexual assault. That is insane that those videos exist, and this case makes me so mad. During the jury's deliberation, they came forward to ask the judge several questions regarding Michael's sexual assault charge. Now, remember, they don't know about his fucked-up computer history, and they have no real evidence to prove he sexually assaulted Tori. The sexual gratification was a major motive in the Crown's case, and without the computer evidence, it was really hard to prove due to the advanced decomposition of Tori's remains. After only 10 hours of deliberation, the jury came back with their verdict. Michael Thomas Rafferty was found guilty on the charges of first-degree murder and sexual assault causing bodily harm, as well as kidnapping. He was given the maximum sentence of life in prison with no possibility of parole for 25 years, which would bring him to the year 2034. In August of 2012, Michael put in an appeal on his conviction, stating that the judge did not properly instruct the jury. The appeal was quickly dismissed. In October of 2018, Terry Lynn McClintock was controversially moved to the Okimwa Ochi Healing Lodge in Saskatchewan, run by the Correctional Service of Canada. She was granted the move as an Aboriginal, but whether she is actually Aboriginal or not has not been confirmed but it has been disputed by a family member. The lodge is a minimum slash medium security prison, but is unfenced. It's monitored 24 hours a day with video cameras. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau feast, feast, faced increased scrutiny for acknowledging he did not have the right to return McClintock to a maximum security prison, since that falls under the purview of the Commissioner of Correctional Services. Rodney Stafford was furious, 
he made waves in order to get Terry Lynn moved back to prison. He, as well as many members of the community, rallied together to push against the move. They protested in Woodstock, and I believe they even took the protest to Parliament Hill in Ottawa. Um, I put some pictures up on my Instagram of um, the signs they made. He went ham. They were so mad that she was moved. The Conservative MP Candace Bergen introduced a motion in Parliament to condemn and overturn this decision. The motion was granted a day's acrimonious debate and was defeated 200 to 82, with all Liberal MPs voting against it. Under increasing public pressure, Minister of Public Safety Ralph Goodale issued an order for Correctional Services Canada to review the decision and the general policy. On November 7th, Goodale announced that McClintock would be returned to federal prison. Regulations for transferring long-term prisoners to healer lodges would be made stricter. She was transferred to a multi-level Edmonton institution for women. And that, my friends, is the terrible, horrific, gruesome, sad story of Tori Stafford and the disgusting, messed up history of Michael Rafferty and Terry Lynn McClintock. Um, I hope you all enjoyed this episode. Again, I know it was really long and I know it was really heavy, so I appreciate the listens. Um, Hopefully my next case will be a little bit lighter. Um, I know this is a murder podcast, but I'll try to find something that doesn't involve children because they're really, really sad and hard to research. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at NotAlwaysPolite. And I will catch you guys next week for another episode. Have a great week, and I will catch you guys later. Bye-bye. Oh, will this bitch ever learn how to say goodbye like a regular human? Stay tuned for next week uh, to find out. Okay, bye.